surprising and, and hopefully it's going to just encourage you. Yeah. So let's read the passage and I'm going to pray. This comes is from, of course, Matthew chapter 28, the favorite missionary passage. And I promise I've never actually preached this passage specifically before. So this is new for me tonight. It says, beginning, uh, I believe in verse yep, 16, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, Father, uh, we come before you tonight expecting more. Lord, let there be more anointing. Let there be more just presence and experience of your presence tonight. Let there be just more of what you've been doing in this community. I pray, I pray it would be amplified. It would be increased, Jesus, through the intensity of your spirit speaking to our hearts tonight. Let the message of God be revealed in our hearts in such a way that it imprints us, it marks us, that we are we are marked by this, these words for the rest of our lives. Because I believe this is a lifelong message that you have for us. This is not something that we want to hear tonight and forget tomorrow or next week. But Lord, I pray you would bring this to remembrance at every major crossroad in the lives of each one of these students here tonight. And the staff as well. Lord, I pray that there just be an unction. Thank you for the burden that you've given into my heart. Lord, I pray it be released upon every single individual here tonight, that they would walk away with the same burden and the same unction as well. Lord, just meet us tonight, we pray. It's in your name, Jesus, we ask this. Amen. I love this passage, and I feel like for the last 12, 13 years as a follower of Jesus, I've been just discovering the richness of it more and more. But I want to draw your attention to a couple things that we don't typically notice about it. A lot of times, and I've actually preached this before, we look at this passage as sort of the, the uh, dying last words, or like a last wish that Jesus leaves with his followers. But I was so struck as I was preparing this word for you tonight by the final verse in, the, in Matthew's Gospel. Verse 20. I am with you always. I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. I was so struck by the fact that Jesus is saying at the very end, hey guys, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. But we read this passage, we read that command like, like it's the dying wish of someone who's never going to speak again. And this is it. This is his last revelation, and now it's up to us to carry it on. Mm. And we read it like, it's almost like Jesus is standing before the eleven and saying, okay guys, here it is. I'm going to peace out. It's up to you now. And that's true. There's responsibility in the Great Commission, right? I don't want to minimize that. But I do want to maybe balance it with the revelation that Jesus promises to be with us. I think, and I've fallen into this trap, we think of Jesus as standing at some finish line when we die, ready to welcome us into heaven if we've made it. And we think, man, if I can just get to the finish line, if I can just live a life 
that is worthy for him. And we all, as followers of Jesus, need them to have the aspiration to live a life that's worthy. That's a noble ambition. But how many of you know it can be taxing if you don't actually believe that Jesus is with you, but instead waiting for you on the other side of it. And I hear people say, really incredible people say things like, I just want to hear Jesus say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. And again, that's a noble ambition. But let me tell you something tonight. You don't have to wait until you die to hear yeah. Jesus tell you that he's pleased with you. Yeah. Okay? For real. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to know the love and approval of Jesus Christ for you. In fact, you should not wait. I had a job right after high school that allowed me to go to college. I worked for a year, full time, I took a gap year. My dad and my grandfather both worked for Pepsi. In fact, my dad still works for Pepsi for the, the entirety of their lives. My grandfather worked for Pepsi for 44 years. My dad's probably approaching somewhere over 30. And so my dad got me a job working for Pepsi. So third generation Pepsi. You know, you got military families, and then you got Pepsi families. So I went in to work for Pepsi reluctantly, but knowing there was a lot of money involved in that, that line of work, it's just not desirable. And I remember having a boss who sat in an office while I was always out in the grocery store stacking 12 packs on the shelf, okay? So I would, those guys that, that stock your store at the grocery store, that's hard work. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of labor involved, a lot of early mornings. And I remember my boss, this is the extent of my relationship with him, he would be there to tell me if I needed to do something different, or if something was going wrong in the moment, I would call him and usually not get a hold of him. And I, I'm afraid that a lot of times, we as followers of Jesus relate to Jesus like my boss. Where if he's going to get a hold of you, it's usually to tell you something that you're doing wrong. Or if you need to get a hold of him, you don't know where he's at. That's not at all what Jesus is promising in Matthew 28, 20. Yeah. That, that's not with you. No. Right? How many of you know commandments sound different when you're with the person that's commanding you? Yeah. Okay, so I'm thinking of my dad worked for Pepsi. I remember helping him as a young kid. He would take me sometimes along. And my dad, in that moment, we're working side by side. Tell me, hey, Brian, I need you to go do this. That sounds a lot different than my boss sitting in his office, you know, calling me up, saying, hey, Brian, I need you to do this. A lot of times we interpret the commands of God like they're being passed down from, from him way, way far away. And he's yeah. just watching to make sure you obey. But let me tell you something. If you realize you're doing it with him, and he's commanding you, he's saying, hey, you need to do it this way, or hey, I want you to go do this. But he's there. He's in the middle of it, working right alongside you. In fact, you're, you're just trying to keep up. That changes how you view obedience. That changes the command relationship that you have with him. It, it makes you want to obey more. I love that the end of Matthew's gospel is verse 20. The gospel ends with a promise. And I love the commandment. I love 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Because I'm all about it. I'm going to share that with you in a minute, what I'm planning to do. It's because of this verse. But, but let me tell you something tonight, Kyle. If there wasn't the promise, we're, hope is gone for obeying that command. Yeah. If it weren't for Jesus' promise that he's going with me, yeah. I have no hope. Yeah. I, there's no way I'm going to be able to fulfill what he has tasked me with and us with. Right. Right? Us with. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? When you realize that really it all hinges on this promise to be with you, that changes your perspective about the Great Commission. He's not going anywhere. And check this out. It's surprising to the disciples how he's going to be with them. Because it's not going to be bodily anymore. He's about to ascend to the right hand of heaven. He's or the right hand of God. He's about to ascend to his throne as God, as Lord, as King of Kings. Right? But then he's going to send his spirit and his spirit whose primary job is lifting up and elevating Jesus is going to come and live inside the disciples' hearts. He's going to take up residence inside of them. And then Jesus also tells them, he's going to bring me and the Father too. So they're getting God. They're getting all of God inside of them, not in a specific location anymore, not in Galilee on this mountain, but wherever they go, he'll be with them. Just as Jesus Christ is with us tonight. Just as Jesus Christ will be with my wife and I and our team and our children when we plan to go to Russia. Okay, so we're, we're missionaries to Russia and we, we're planning to do Pi Alpha there. We're planning to do exactly this. We're going to take this transplanted over to St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, yeah. But if Jesus wasn't with us, no way. Yeah. Yeah. No way, but because Jesus is with us, yeah. absolutely, I'm, I'm signing up. Yeah, you see that? You see how that's different? Yeah. Dick Brogdon, Woo-hoo. you know, amazing yeah. veteran missionary, served years on the field in some of the hardest places. Yeah. I got to listen to him share a teaching on longevity. I'm interested in that. Yes. I want to. I'm in it for the long haul. I don't. I don't want to burn out quick yeah. for Jesus. I want to make it to the very end. I want to. I want to serve Jesus faithfully for years. I want to have years of service on the field. I want to be in Russia long term. That's our goal. How do we do it? And this is what he said. You have all kinds of layers of identity as a follower of Jesus. You have your leadership identity. That's the most fleeting. That's the one that comes and goes the most often. Right now, in this season that I'm in, I'm a leader over nothing. Officially. Okay, I'm, I'm just raising the funds and making connections and partnerships with churches to be able to go. But I'm not a leader right now. I was a leader in Chi Alpha. I took that hat off. Now I'm, I'm not a leader of anything. And then when we go overseas, you know, there will be time and opportunity to become a resource leader, company leader, whatever. But my point is, leadership, it just comes and goes. So if that's your primary identity, that's going to be tough. Yeah. So Dick Rogers says, before I'm a leader, I'm a missionary. And so that means if he's on the field and he doesn't have a leadership title, he's still going to actively pursue the mission of God. Yeah. Yeah. But what if, for some reason, he can't stay on the field? And missionary is his primary identity. He's going to have an identity crisis. 
That happens. Sickness happens to missionaries all the time on the field. There could be a crisis related to the national government, a coup, a war, right? Happens. That's relevant to my situation. There could be all number of things that cause missionaries to leave the field. So before he's a leader, before he's a missionary, he's a disciple maker. Yeah. Okay. Meaning, even if he's in the U.S. or if he's in Cairo, Egypt, or Saudi Arabia, wherever he may be, he's going to be making disciples first and foremost. And that's beautiful, and I'm all about that. But what if, for some reason, he gets hit by a bus? And he loses his ability to communicate. He no longer can share the gospel. He can't teach, can't impart his life to any other follower of Jesus. He can't make disciples. What is he then? That's a good question, right? He said, before I'm a disciple maker, I'm a son of God. Dick Rodman said that. And it really struck me. Because here's this big deal missionary that we... We look up to him, we aspire to be like, and that's right. But he's telling me, if I'm not, first and foremost, a son of God, if you're not a daughter of God, and that's your primary identity, you're going to have some issues with longevity. My children, they don't care what I do for a job. They just don't care about my personality that much, whether I'm really that funny or not. They don't care, you know, if I'm charming or whatever. They don't care what really even what I look like. What do my children care about? Being with me. Right? Being with me. Your sonship, your daughtership of God is defined by the presence of God in your life. You're longing to be with him, to be close to him. That's who you are. Right? That's who you are. And that's what Jesus is saying. He wants to be with you. With. I I can't say that word enough. That's the word tonight. With. God with you. Okay? I believe discipleship is the clear-cut, shortest route to victory that we have. And by victory, I mean winning the world and the nations to worship Jesus. Winning the nations to the kingdom of God. Winning them to become sons and daughters of the Father. The clearest cut way to do that, the shortest route, which is what the one I want to take, is making disciples. How many, how many of you know or have realized that discipleship is kind of counterintuitive? It's surprising that it works. Think about it. Let's focus on a few rather than many. And then as we focus on those few, they're going to take that to another few. We're going to take that to another few. And before you know it, you have San Houston State Chi Alpha. And then you have Colorado State University Chi Alpha. And then you have Chi Alpha and St. Petersburg, Russia. And then beyond that, we're dreaming of Russians taking Chi Alpha beyond their borders. You see that? That's counterintuitive. When Jake met me in the student center, and I was just this punk, 21-year-old, selfish, hard-hearted, backslidden Christian kid. When he met me, how could he ever have dreamed that one day we would be serving Jesus together in Russia? But that's how discipleship works. There's a, an incredible author of a great book on discipleship. His name is David. 
I'm blanking on the name now. David, uh, I can't remember the last name, but it's called this Contagious Disciple Making. Okay, Contagious Disciple Making, it's an incredible book. And in this book, David, one of the authors, he co-authors it with his son, he says he was a missionary in northern India for years. He had a calling to reach Indians, specifically in northern India, which was highly resistant and hostile to the gospel. And he was about ready to give up. He had tried everything to plant the church there, and it had failed time and time again. That's a pretty, actually, common narrative overseas. So he sits down with the Lord in his frustration. He says, God, look, you called me here. I know that. I'm, I'm confident that you called me. So if you call me, you've got to show me how to do this. You know what the Holy Spirit's answer was? I love this. Pick five people that I show you, invest in them until they understand what to do next, and that's how you're going to win northern again. Okay, so he does it. He's, he's, he's at the end of his rope, so he's willing to try anything. I, it's crazy, right, that discipleship is his last resort. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what in the world has happened to the church? Yeah. But he, he goes and he, he makes disciples. The Holy Spirit shows him five individuals. He invests in them. They're the right people. And then over time, it seems like nothing's happened. So his organization that sent him is saying, hey, David, what's going on? Because it looks like you're just doing stuff with five people. And we sent you over there to reach northern India. And he says, hold on. Give me more time. Give me more time. They want to fire him. No joke, he says that. His missionary organization wants to call him home. Because in their eyes, he's fruitless. And he says, no, no, no. He pleads with them. He begs them, give me more time. After a number of years go by, sure enough, discipleship happens. It works just like Jesus said it would. He said, fast forward a number of years, and there are over 10,000 churches in that area of northern India. 10,000 churches, right? It shocks us. It's, it, it's like weird. But it totally, totally works. A lot of people right now are praying for the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and rightfully so. I hear a lot of prayer for Ukraine, and I believe it's being answered. Right? Ukraine was existentially saved. Right? Their existence was threatened at the beginning of the war. Everyone thought two weeks tops, Russia's going to just steamroll this nation. And then they held out. Right? I believe that's a large part because of people praying. People were praying for Ukraine to be saved, for, for the Lord to, to stop this ungodly conflict, this ungodly war. And I see Ukrainian flags everywhere. It's a beautiful thing. It's a rallying point for the West. But what I see seldom, and I'm thinking about this because of my calling, but what I seldom see is prayers for Russia. Yeah. Yeah. As Christ followers, doing the unexpected, following the unexpected Jesus, we're to think differently. Yeah. Which includes thinking about the enemy. Yeah. Because Jesus said, you, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemies. Yeah. That's, <laughs> think how so shocking that was to his ears. Yeah. Love our enemies? Love our enemies? Like, love them? That's what he said. And I'm thinking about how in the world do we really end this conflict? 
How do we how do we really bring justice to this world? Pray for Russia is one step, but there's got to be something more. I believe it's making disciples in Russia. Yeah. Discipleship in Russia gives me all the confidence I need to go forward because I know that's the shortest route to transforming the nation. Yeah. yeah. Lilia Strader was a missionary hero. Uh, she went to North Africa. Just an incredible woman of God. Her story is unbelievable. She was called there. She gave up a life of potentially being a great artist as a painter. And when she went to North Africa, she said this about her and two other women that went with her. We were the saddest, sorriest, weakest group of women you could ever have imagined on the mission field. If God wanted weakness, he had it. She said that this incredible woman would eventually disciple men, women, and children from Islam to become followers of Jesus Christ. She saw countless salvations, conversions to Jesus, just incredible things. And I think about us, I think about myself and our team. If you look on paper, it's like, what are we against a thousand years of Russian history? Where they've repeated the same thing they're doing right now. This is not new for Russia. They've been here before. I, I heard it put this way. Russia is like driving a car where the windshield is kicked in mud. All you can do is look backwards. That's Russia. And the people, just imagine the feeling of despair right now. Especially amongst people your age. Who think we're doomed to, to repeat this history again. How do we have any chance in the world against a thousand years of oppression and injustice and violence? How, how can we be naive enough to think we're going to go in there and we're going to make a difference? And we might actually change an entire culture to where Russia becomes a blessing to the nations rather than a curse. How can we dare believe that? I got the answer right here. We're going to go make disciples. That's it, friends. That's it. I don't have six other talents that I can incorporate to go do this. All I know is what's been discipled into me. These convictions that you have and you're learning to walk out, they work. They absolutely work. They work overseas. They work in any nation. They work in Russia. They work in Colorado. They work here in Huntsville, Texas. Thank you, Jesus. All right, thank you, Jesus. And then I want to draw your attention to one more thing in this passage. Jesus is talking to the group. What does he have before him? Eleven disciples. And this is a very poor mission statement and strategy by today's standards, right? If we're talking about mission statements and you know, organizational structures, this is not it. Eleven guys who are mostly fishermen who were poor Galileans. Because the one Judean betrayed Jesus and left. So now they're all Galileans. They're, they're country bumpkins. They're, they're the hicks of their culture under Roman occupation. And he said, you guys are it. You're my A-team. You are going to go do this. What does he actually have in front of him? Here's one thing he has. He has a commitment. To one another and to him. Yeah. He has them learning to constantly forgive one another. Yeah. 
time and time again. They've, they've hurt each other. They've stepped on each other's toes. They've jockeyed for position, but they've learned how to forgive. They have now a common understanding. They've been through stuff together. They're not just a random assortment of 11 individuals with no history. They have incredible history together. Right? They have incredible history together. He's looking at these individuals and he's saying to them, now that he's resurrected and now that he's He's, this, he's demonstrated that he's the Lord of Lords. They now have the last ingredient, which is they are now going to practice a common unselfishness. Yeah. And they're going to live it out. We see that in the book of Acts. They live it out. Those are what we call have the four C's. Yeah. I believe if you have those, you have a winning recipe. You have all you need. Everything else is gravy. you got to have those four things. I used to hear that maxim in Archialpa and think, that sounds nice. Now I realize it's indispensable. Yeah. That if we're going to do what we do in Russia, we got to have these four things. But if we got these four things, we got it. That's what we bring to the table. Jake and I, we have a common understanding. Man, we've been through things together. I can't even elaborate on what we've been through here in, on this microphone. Okay, We've been through stuff together. Man, Jake has seen me at my worst. I've seen him at his worst. We've learned together the convictions that we have. We have this shared history which bonds. We understand the, the language we speak. We understand one another. Our hearts beat as one. We have a unity. We have a commitment to one another. I'm committed to Jake. I remember as the years went by, so Jake and I, we got the time to be together in Russia back in 2013. My wife, Liliana, was on that team. Jake's wife, Shelly, was on that team. And we had another young girl who was part of our team. The five of us were in Russia in 2013. And while we were there, Jake was praying about, is this a long-term calling? Because we were, we had started Kai in 2012. I was part of that first team. We had seen the Lord move. We had seen Russians come to faith in Jesus. And we were starting to pray, Lord, is this something you want us to do? For a long time, because when you first go to Russia, your mindset is not, oh, I want to stay there as long as possible. You're like, okay, maybe I'll give a year and then get out of there. But we were ready and willing to stay because Jake and Shelly were willing to stay. And they asked my wife and I to pray about it. They said, would you commit to being with us? I've never had a real specific, concrete calling to Russia. I've never had a moment where God outlined the city or the people group of Russians, the Slavic people, no, no, no. What I have had is a commitment to Jake and Shelley that is shared by my wife. We, we have this commitment to one another, which is the same commitment which won me to Jesus. Yeah. Friends, if you want to manifest the kingdom of God, pursue the miraculous. But more than that, be committed to one another. That's what gets people's attention. It's the, it's the rarest thing in our world. Yeah, right. To see people prioritize one another over position and place. Yeah. Yeah, I kept telling Jake after that season in Russia, we came back to Colorado. And every time I'd see Jake at a salt conference, sometimes we, we got to be worshiped together. We got to be together from time to time. I said, Jake, I'm coming. I'm coming. I promise. But the Lord led us on this long journey that I don't have time to elaborate on tonight back to Colorado for seven years. 
And now those seven years have gone by, and this past year we've been going through the steps we need to go back to Russia long term. That's because of our commitment to Jacob Shelley. You see, God he is deeply interested in people. Yeah. God is a people person, if you want to put it that way. He's a people God. He's, he's all about people. All about people. More than the cause. Okay? And that's a, there's not a fifth C in our maxim. There's no common cause. I see people rally around causes, and then that sputters out. I'm thinking of a very notable Russian by the name of Vladimir Lenin. Lenin had a noble cause, communism. His goal was the eradication of selfishness in humankind. Okay? His, his field of operation was Russia. It was said by one fellow communist about Lenin that he was the scariest man in the room because he did nothing but live, eat, sleep, and drink communism. His life was devoted to the cause. Every other member of the party that he led had to be devoted to the cause. Do you know that with a small band of highly committed devoted followers, he took over a nation of over 150 million people? Tiny, it was a tiny group at first. They came to control a third of the Earth's landmass at the height of the Soviet Union. So discipleship works, right? Even in the, even, even in the wrong hands. Those principles still work. He employed principles of discipleship. The thing is, communism had a short shelf life of 70 years. 70 years, that was it, and it was done. That banner of the Soviet Union has been furled out and put low on the ground. But the cause of Christ continues. Why? Because it's not, it's not a cause around an ideology. Or even, check this out, just the advancement of the gospel. But it's people who are deeply committed to Jesus Christ, the person. And that will never wear out. It will live as long as he lives. Forever. Forever. So you see, God is a people person. I want to look really quick at the, the life of Paul to, to underscore this. The Apostle Paul. Not a, not a real people person, right? Imagine what he was like before he became a follower of Jesus. Really hard to be around. Super intelligent. Deeply committed to his convictions. Really hard to live with. Violent. Willing to do the extreme to get what he wanted. That's a hard man to be around. When Jesus gets a hold of him, the hardness is gone, and in its place is a soft heart. A.W. Tozer said this, that God is not hard to live with. The holiest person being in the universe is not hard to live with. Paul was hard to live with. And we think of holiness like that. We think of really holy people. Maybe you've met them. They're tough. I've met them. They're hard to be with. People that are even really committed to Jesus, they claim to be his followers, but there's something missing. And it's this softness that you see in the Apostle Paul. It would be easy, in a sense, challenging, but easy to be around Paul based on what you read in the New Testament. How many of you know you would want to sign up to be discipled by him? It would be it would be amazing to be around him. And yeah, he would challenge you like crazy. 
but it always would come from this place of deep love, and you, you would love it. You'd be like, I love the challenge. Challenge me more. I'm enjoying this. He would be easy to be around. When he left a group of leaders in, in Ephesus, they wept when he left them. Friends, how you leave? Chi Alpha, some of you that are seniors here tonight, or staff that are leaving this community, how you leave? And what people do when you leave says a lot about your ministry. Yeah. If there's no tears and it's just dry eyes, you might want to question what you actually accomplished. Yeah. It should be hard. It's hard to leave CSU. It's hard to leave Colorado. There's gonna, there's gonna be, there's definitely gonna be tears. There's already been tears. There's gonna be more tears on the way, right? I want that. I want there to be a level of affection for one another mm-hmm. that you see in the New Testament. You see it in Paul's life. He said this in 1 Thessalonians 2 8. We were like a woman, like a mother nursing her children among you. We were gentle with you. We were delighted to share with you not just the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. Yeah. He was delighted to share his life. Yeah. And there are there are people who are they're delighted to share the gospel, but I don't know if they're to light and share their lives with others. You see, this is all revolving around this idea that God is a people person. Paul in 2 Corinthians says that a door of ministry was open to him in Troas, but he was troubled because he couldn't find Titus, one of his disciples. So he left the open door of ministry to go find Titus. He left an open door of ministry. This is Paul. That's his, that's his calling. What's he doing? He left an open door to go find Titus. He prioritized Titus above the open door of ministry because Paul understood if Titus didn't make it, the whole thing was shot. People are God's priority. People are God's priority. Okay. Here's a list of his companions. I'm just going to read. I love this. These are people he traveled with. We think of Paul as the Lone Ranger, doing it all on his own. There were 16 individuals he named as companions. They traveled with him, not to mention the names who he ministered to and loved. Aquila, Aristarchus, Barnabas, Epaphras, Gaius, Justice, Luke, Marcus, Onesimus, Philemon, Priscilla, Secundus, Silas, Sopater, Tertius, Timothy, Titus, Trophimus, Tychicus, Andronicus, Aphia, Archippus, Carpus, Demas, Epaphroditus, Erasmus, Lucius, Lydia, Jason, Junia, Nymphus, Onesiphorus, Phoebe, Tyrannus, and Urbane. Notice how many are Gentile, non-Jewish names. Three of those men would eventually be in prison with Paul. We, we think based on, based on his letters and understanding his language, Paul wasn't even alone in prison. He was with people. We have this idea that missionaries need to be scattered to the farthest corners of the world. And this happens not just overseas, but in the marketplace. When you go and you pursue a, a career path, and you're thinking, I'm just going to go wherever I end up going, and we scatter broadly, the thinking is we're going to expand our reach, but that seldom is the case. And at least based on the New Testament, it might not be the biblical model. For a long time in mission history, that's been the model. You don't put two missionaries together. You've got to separate them as far as possible to expand their reach. But Jesus is saying here, and I believe Paul is saying here, that together with 
one another with each other, we're going to get the job done. Okay. My wife, Ileana, she was, like a lot of you, when she came into this community, uh, just lost, didn't know the Lord. And as she came in, uh, back in 2009, here's what happened. She was invited by Kent Smithson, inviting her guy friend. Okay? So she came and thought Kyle was going to be a fraternity party. All right? It ended up being Huntsville First AT. Okay? And while there, she hears Eli Gautreau preach about the cross. And she says it's one of the first times in her life that she heard about the cross. Unexpected. Unexpected. I want to invite the worship team to come back up as we close. You don't outgrow these convictions. You don't outgrow these convictions. My wife was met in this community by Jesus back in 2009 and now she's going to serve the Lord as a missionary in Russia and we're believing the Lord's going to get us in you know a lot of people have been asking how are you going to do that with the conflict we're applying for visas right now we should know any day if we get the visas if we do we're going Okay, we're optimistic we're going to get these visas the thing is my wife and I are still making disciples that was 2009. For me, 2008, when I encountered Jesus. We haven't outgrown disciple making. Now, I've lived enough life to see Kayaba people, former Kayaba people, who had the same convictions that I have, sit down, take a step out of the fight, maybe for a season, and then it turns into something longer and longer. And, and you wonder, did, did we even share the same convictions? Because if it's a conviction, you should live it out no matter what, right? And yeah, Kayapa may be a season for you that's quick. Maybe it's just as a student. But disciple making is not. Okay? Disciple making is not. Kayapa may be a longer season for you that are on staff. Maybe you're a first or second year intern. Okay? And, and maybe the Lord's going to call you to church plant or to go church plant overseas. But making disciples is not something you outgrow. When I look at Paul, his last letter as he's dying is not to his great church, Ephesus. It's not, oh, my Ephesus, you know, my great joy, the, the great work of God that I did. Who is his last letter to? Timmy. It's to a disciple. Paul, at the end of his life, is thinking not about the greater church, although he has that in his heart. He's not thinking about the great mighty things that he did for God. He's thinking about his dear brother. Yeah. Friends, you don't outgrow this stuff. These guys, when they got the great commission, they didn't outgrow it. They kept doing it to the very end. They never got to a point in their lives where they said, I can just lay those things down on the side and move on to something else. So I want to ask you a few questions as, as we respond tonight. First of all, can you honestly say that you're conscious of Jesus being with you? Can you honestly say, you, you, you understand what that's like because he's, he's with you. Is that a lived experience for you tonight? 
Or is that foreign for you? If so, I invite you to respond tonight. You come down to this altar space. You can come move over on the sides and bow down. But invite Jesus to be with you. Ask if you can be with him. Really, that's, that's more of the correct request. Are you prioritizing togetherness in your plans for your future? Or have you even given it a second thought at all? Who are you going to go with? Are you going to do this by yourself? Are you going to go alone? You want to be a missionary? Maybe the Lord's been speaking to you about that this year or this semester. Who's going with you? Are you going to join somebody that's already doing it? Or are you dreaming and prioritizing position and place over people? Are you people-oriented? This is my last question. Are you people-oriented? Um, excuse me. I apologize. I'm going to ask one more. <laughs> Not only are you people-oriented, but is anyone walking with Jesus as a direct result of your life tonight? If you had to write down on a piece of paper some individual that's, that truly is, is following Jesus as a direct influence of your life, who would be on that list? And for some of you, that list might be blank right now. Maybe you're a brand new believer. You just came in the kingdom like last week with Sean Smith. And you're like, man, I have, not yet. That's okay. But honestly, if you've been serving and following Jesus for a while now, and you're concerned that that list is blank, that's actually a good place to be in. Not condemned, but concerned. And the right follow-up response is, Jesus, I want to make a difference in someone else's life. I want to make disciples, really is what that is. Yeah. I want to be about discipleship. I want to be about this. I want you to be convinced that this is the way, this is, this is what you've got to do. Because he's with you. Amen? Because he's with you.